0: So uh, to give you an idea of what we're going to be looking at, it's the idea that David's going to spend a good 10 years of his life, and it's going to kind of look, if this is kind of the sea over here, and uh, this is the uh, Israel kind of ends on this end, so this is water, water, okay? So if you can imagine, David's life for the next 10 years is going to kind of look a little bit, he's got kind of a backtrack here going to go around the edge here. There's going to be a city here that's important, a city here that's important, city here. and you're going to kind of watch David kind of do this weird kind of all-over-the-place kind of journey for the next 10 years of his life. And I don't know if you can relate or not, but sometimes like when you look back at your last three years or your last five years, you're kind of looking at this going like, yeah, that seems about right. Like, you know what I mean? Like my life kind of looks like that, you know? It wasn't this like linear line. David is going to be all over the place on the map today, and we're going to kind of fill those in a little bit this morning, but. First off, I want you, now that everybody has a piece, um, nobody's eaten it yet, right? I can't see you. Okay. Is that gum? Okay. All right. Saw chewing, and it's humble, so. All right. So, so this morning, uh, I want you to do me a favor, and, and I promise, I know this is kind of goofy, but, but stick with me. Uh, I need you to close your eyes, Okay. And I want you to imagine, I know, I know, stick with me, imagine, okay, you've been invited to a very formal dinner, okay, you you, you, you can walk into this place, it's a ballroom type setting, it's amazingly immaculate as you walk into the place, you see the table set before you, and it's just for you and your guests, it's an amazing, amazing place. The 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 best of the best plates and glasses are there, tablecloths, silverware, expensive chairs, high-end, high-end. High-end uh, drinks and, and, and wines and, and all these kind of things that are laid out in front of you. Best imported food from around. Formal attire should be worn to such and such occasion. And as you sit down to this table in this banquet, you hear these words, okay? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And, and, and that's the kind of setting, right? It's just good to be here. Okay, so now, as your eyes are closed, you can open them a little bit. I want you to eat the chocolate, okay? This is a great time. Just enjoy the flavor of chocolate this morning. For those who can't do chocolate, I apologize. That's all I had, okay? So just imagine, okay, you put it in, just kind of savor it. Just give it a second, okay? Especially some of the dark chocolate. You're kind of like, mmm, yeah, this is a good place, right? Visitors, no, okay. come on back, it's great. Um, this, this is, the, this is the, the setting, right, okay, and it's just good. And, and it's amazing, I think sometimes when we look at Scripture, we can read, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. But then to like taste, chocolate, you're like You're yes, God is good, right? Um, whatever your favorite meal is, God is good, and we can taste and see that he is good. Now, as you have that in your head, you look around your surroundings and you realize you're not just at a banquet table. You are sitting in the middle of a war zone. <laughs> this is your surroundings. The table is kind of there at the bottom, but you are surrounded just by chaos and obstructions and buildings collapsing. This is what we're going to look, look at in the life of David today. He writes these words in the midst of a war zone. He writes these words in the middle of something that is going terribly, terribly wrong in his life. And here's where we're gonna land for the morning, and I wanna kind of just give it to you early. But when David, sh- he's gonna show us how to trust God's providence over his present circumstances. God, he's going to show us how to trust God's providence over his present. He's gonna show us how to praise God's provision over his his or our protection. Okay. He's going to look and say, you know what? My resolve is strong because God and his provision is bigger than my present and God's, uh, God's uh, meeting my needs is bigger than my present. Now, let me just kind of give you a, a key term here when he says providence, okay? That God's providence over our president, right? You're kind of like, okay, are a lot of peas, but what does providence mean? Let me give you this from an article from Desiring God. It says this, it, it means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support, And so the noun providence has come to mean the act of providing for or sustaining and governing the universe by God. So when it says that God is providential, that he is the providence of God, it means that he is providing or sustaining, governing the world around us. He says this, I think the deep answer is that God never simply sees without acting. Because providence is not just a noun, it's actually a verb as well. In the, in the Hebrew, it can actually mean a forward motion. So he says, I think the deep answer is that God never simply sees without acting. He is God. He is not a passive participant in a world that exists without its sustaining. Whenever, wherever God is looking, God is acting. If God perceives, he performs. If he inspects, he effects. In other words, there is profound theological reason why providence does not merely mean foreknowledge, but rather the active sustenance and governance of the universe. An old great theological terminology of this said it like this, the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creation, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. We're going to see this morning the idea of providence, the idea that God is not just knowing the future of David, but he is acting in providence. David's benefit as he works through chapter 21 and even into chapter 22. Again, we're going to fill in the story as we walk along. So if you have your Bibles, chapter 21 is where we will be in uh, 1 Samuel 21, okay? So we have just left him. He has just had these arrows shot by him, and now he's on the run. He begins his 10-year journey away from King Saul and uh, he begins in verse 1 Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. So Nob would be up here, and this would be a city that was known for a lot, a lot of priests. Somebody said in uh, one of the readings that this is about where 80% of the priests resided at that time. So think of this huge, huge seminary kind of town where all these pastors are getting trained and all these prophets are being trained. That's where David begins to run because he's on the run. He he has nobody left to go to, and so he runs to the city of Nob. And as he arrives, he sees this, this priest by the name of Ahimelech, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I sent you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, one... uh, Ahimelech being nervous would have been very, very appropriate because David was kind of over the secret service at this point of King Saul. He was over the the, uh, goings and comings and setting up the, the travel times for Saul. And so if David comes alone... That's not good for whoever is receiving him because their life is now in jeopardy. This priest is thinking, oh man, David's come to kill me because he's traveling alone and he's normally got a large entourage around him for his protection and also for the king's protection. He comes alone and it's a terrible, terrible thing. And he says, What's going on? And so David says, Here's what's going on. And just so you know, David is a terrible maker upper of bad stories. I mean, this, he, he, he says, Here's, here's, here's my story. Uh, let no one know the matter which I charge you. And then he says, I made an appointment with a young man for such and such a place. In other words, his, his rationale is he sent me on this mission thing to go somewhere with some people to do something, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> he's like, that seems legitimate. Um, and so it, he kind of makes up this story because he's on the run. And there's a reason why I think he makes up the story. It's not to protect his own self. I fully believe that David did this to protect Ahimelech that he was trying to protect this priest, knowing that if Saul heard about this, that Ahimelech's life would be in danger, not just David's. And I think David's trying to protect him in this. And he says then in verse 3, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answers the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. Trust me, I am all alone here. The vessels of the young men are holy. Trust me, we ain't seen women in days. Um, And he says, The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? In other words, trust me, women, not an issue right now. Seen a lot of animals, no animals. Nothing, just. So the priest says, um, We got this bread here, and he says, This is all I've got left. So the priest gives him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread the day it is taken away. Now, just to kind of catch you up on your Old Testament theology and what the old this bread of presence means. This was a Sabbath meal with God and the priests. So in other words, this was a meal specifically designed for the priests to have communion with God Himself. Set up in Exodus and also in Numbers. So from Exodus, he says, "You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it." Two tenths of an epaph shall be in each loaf, and you shall place them in two piles, six in one pile on the table of pure gold for the Lord, and you shall put the frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. And here's where you get into this. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever and it shall be for Aaron and his sons and they shall eat it in a holy place since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings a perpetual due now as we said the providence of God this is just another providence of God the goodness of God to say hey we've got a lot of sacrifices a lot of things to get to in your job as priest but I'm going to give you a chance where the people give you this bread to set aside to just have communion with God Can you imagine that? The priest got to go into the Holy of Holies and have dinner with God and breaking this bread together with him and just being able to be with him in his presence, literally in his presence at that point, because he would come. Anyway, whole thing in the Old Testament. He says, that's the kind of bread I got left. This is not for ordinary people. And as a matter of fact, you read in Mark later that that Jesus uh, talks about this idea of presence bread and, and he ticks off some Pharisees because of what happened in this thing. And uh, this is an interesting portion because David's trying to, again, I believe, save this priest's life in this, but he's having to tell this fabricated story, which is a nice way of saying he lied, right? And so what do you do with a king who lies in the middle of trying to save his life? Well, one, I think you'd say, well, he's you know, trying to save his life, and so it's okay. But, but I think David was, in fact, covering not just for himself himself, but the priest, because David has been covering for people since he became king by Samuel. He covered for Samuel, he covered for his wife, he covered for Jonathan, and now he covers for this priest. And we read in Mark chapter 2, 24 to 28, that there is something about the idea of love of man over love of ceremonial law. So and here's what I mean by that. By this, I mean there's something about this priestly bread that's allowed because there's a saving of a life. There's something about this lie that is still a sin, but, but it's the thing that David's reconciling with and it, saying it's, it's to preserve life that I'm doing this. It says this, to save, and this is one of the commentators I says to save and sustain the life of a man, though a fugitive, was more important than to observe a ritual. The subordination of law runs through all things till we come to the highest. That is the supreme love of God. Health and even life may have to be set aside for the assertion of a moral principle, hence the paradox. Class distinctions, official relations, domestic claims, private rights may be in seasons of extreme national peril, extremely ignored for the maintenance of public safety. He says, on this principle, it is that attention to the affairs of life, though right and good, is to yield to the higher obligation of regard of eternal things and deference to self. In other words, he's saying that there is something about our, our, our humanity, the idea of preserving life that trumps a lot of things. And this is the issue with this bread. And this king is in a place of leadership. And this king is actually asking for bread. The interesting thing is you can look at this and say, well, David's on the run. He's, he's asking for this bread. It's kind of this preserving of life. Or you can look at it and say, yeah, but he's king. <laughs> He's already been made king by God. He's already been made king by Samuel. Nobody's recognized yet. So it is as if the king is asking for bread, not David is asking for bread. And here is where you see that God's provision is taking care of David in this time. So the priest gives him this bread and he's able to be sustained, again, seeing God's providence in the midst of this chaotic scenario of his life. And then... You, you, you see, like, the camera angle that's focused on David, and all of a sudden it takes a sharp, drastic turn to some weird dude hanging in the corner with this weird, creepy smile thing going on in the corner where he's just kind of like, mm. and you're kind of like, whoa! You know, because you see David, you see the priest, and you zoom into this guy, and you're like, I don't know about that dude, but I don't like him. And that's where we get to verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, again, Providence of God here. this is not by sir, this is not by coincidence. Detained by the Lord, his name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now. This, this chief of the, of the herdsmen was, again, it was meant to show that he was not of good reputation. He was kind of the lowest of the low. The Edomite says the exact same thing. He was, he was the lowest of the low in the clans. And this guy who is the lowest of the low is trying to make a name for himself. And as he watches this unfold, it's almost like the camera zooms in on this guy. And he's like, okay, I got him. This is the end of David. This is going, this is great. And then as soon as you see the camera angle zoom in on this guy, it zooms back out into David. And so we just get a taste of Doeg, and then we go back to David. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have, uh, then, uh, have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. You will take it, uh, if, you will, if you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> right? That's so cool. I love David. He's like, yep, that's the one I took. That's my sword. I did that. Thank you very much. I'll take that. You know what I mean? It's kind of like that moment in the movie, you're like, Yeah yeah, take that sword, David. That's awesome, man. You earned it. You got it. So the narrator is trying to show us God is still with David. Of all the weapons, that could be anywhere, at all places. How did it end up in Nob, right? We don't really know. There's no explanation in the Bible about how it got there, except for the providence of God. And he's got the weapon, of all weapons, the one he took down, Goliath, with his own sword. And he carries this big, beastly sword he must have been i don't know how you dragged this beast of a sword out and he says this is coming with me and you see god's provision again in his life and that's where we transition then into the next part of our story this morning so we see the provision in the bread we see the providence of god in setting up this priest you strangely see the providence of god in setting up doag the edomite we're going to hear about that in a second But now we move to David, who is still on the run. Verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? He says, is this not the guy that we've been talking about the entire time? Is this not the guy who took us out earlier He says, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, David is running from Nob and he runs over into Gath, which is over here. Now, Gath should be familiar to us because Gath is not only just a city of the Philistines, of which there were five of these cities. Uh, There were five major cities in the Philistine Country, Gath, Ashad, Acheron, Gath, and Ekron, all were part of these major cities in there. But Gath was important because Gath was the hometown of Goliath. So, God, Goliath's, this is so good. Your God is so cool. The, 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 the justice of your God. Goliath's own sword makes it back to his hometown. That's crazy. And he heads back into the hometown because he realizes the one place Saul is not going to look for me, Gath. The one place Saul is not going to go because he's going to start a war is again with the Philistines. He's not going to go over there because it's the safest. And so he goes and he enters enemy territory and tries to protect his life in enemy territory among the family and friends of the giant that he slew earlier. Can you imagine that? Goliath's widow, Goliath's family is still in gath at this point. Not much time has gone between Goliath and this time frame where David is running and on the run. And so David gets into town and people start to make the, the connection. Wait, I think that's David. And how cool is it that, again, the providence of God says they don't even know David. They not only know David, they know the song about David. <laughs> Hey, remember that song on the radio about that guy who killed thousands and tens of thousands? That dude, that guy, a song wrote about him? He's in town. That's David. And they start to kind of put one and, one and one together, and now David is identified. And so David is now taken before the king of Gath. And here are the words in which we find that. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath, okay? So now this king is there. If they find out it's David, this guy's life is over. This is the guy that beat every one of the Philistines on that day of battle. This is the guy that took out their giant. This is the guy who slaughtered all of them. Little side note: Gath is also the place where all the giants lived. If you go back to Joshua and earlier, like all of them were that big. Like you're kind of like, what? It's a land of giants, and so it's interesting. Anyway, so they're back in Gath, and so because he knew this, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his. Beard. So before the king, David starts to act really, really crazy and insane. So much so that he starts writing on doors, and this key thing he says, let his spittle run down his beard. That may not seem like a lot. You're kind of like, yeah, he was kind of acting crazy, it's kind of like a drool kind of deal, right? Can you imagine young David, king, princely, handsome, ruddy, red hair, kind of just the you know, muscles and steel, and everybody's like, yeah, I love that guy. He is hot, he is amazing. fast forward into his life here, and the dude's hair is probably crazy, his beard's all nasty and nappy, and the dude's just kind of like going crazy, writing stuff on doors. And then he has this interesting thing of the spittle on his beard. Now, this was interesting because he says, the beard was like reverence in this time, which I'm like, that only makes sense. Of course it was. I mean, can we go back to those days, please? Where the beard was kind of like a sign of reverence and awe. And everybody's like, that's a great beard. That's a good beard. You should not touch that beard. That's a holy beard, right? And if you say those things, that's fine. That's fine with me. But, But the beard was kind of this holy thing. It was set apart. He says, this is one of the commentators says, The beard was an obvious and important symbol of manhood and culture. Amen. And discretion of one's own beard, especially with spit, would have been an obvious indication of derangement within the context of the culture. Numbers twelve, Deuteronomy twenty-five, Job seventeen. You didn't think the Bible said much about beards? It does. Okay. And and so, as it as it talks about this, he says the spittle would have been a sign of insanity. It was kind of this like. It was like the catch. It was like the, the, the icing on the cake. Is this guy nuts? There's spittle. He's nuts. Okay? And so the guy just kind of like ran himself crazy in front of Achan and pretends to get his way out. Again, is God providing? Possibly. We don't know. Now, we go into verse 14. This is awesome. This is the best line in, in chapter 21, in my opinion. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Right? You see, this dude's nuts. And here's my favorite quote. This should be your life verse right here. Why then have you brought me to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Have you seen my kingdom? Do we have a lack of crazy people? Like, I mean, that's just such a great line. You brought her to me because we don't have enough of these? Are you insane? (laughs) Have you seen who I'm ruling? We've got plenty of crazy. We don't need more crazy in my palace. It's, It's kind of his deal. I love that. Do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And David escapes into the caves afterwards and hides out. And as he hides out in chapter 22, we start to see God do some changing and start to do some working in his life. And we start to see God start to provide again and again some more supplies, more needs for David as he's hiding in the desert. Because here's what we know about David so far. One, his resolve is strong. He's gonna trust God that what he started at the beginning is going to happen. I think in our own lives, right, when we think of God's provision and we think of how he's protecting us and we look at this and we're like, man, David was taken from the best of the best In Saul's palace, respected, dignity, pride, respect, songs written about him. You got that picture with a picture of him looking like castaway with spittle driven down his face, looking and resorting himself to a madman. And you think of the break that I had to see for David. Is his resolve to follow God strong? yes because he trusts him that he says, it's not about my reputation anymore. It's about survival because God has promised something for me. And I think of our own life in this, and I think of my own life in this, and I think there are plenty of things that I look at in my life and I can think, is this truly God providing? Because this isn't what I wanted. This is not how I thought things would go. If my plan was the way it was supposed to be, God is far from it. But here's the deal. And here's what Jesus says, even in the, New, in the New Testament as well. He says, You are to take up your cross daily and follow me. That means we don't always get a say in how God's going to run your story. I think in Christianity, we, we've, 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 and I say this with love, but we have made it so much about ourselves. And if we're suffering at all, we're kind of like, Man, God must be mad at me, or something must be wrong, or I, I don't know why this is going badly. You look at David, you look at the examples in Scripture, and you see all the trouble they've gone through and all the suffering they had to do and all the things that they're faced with on a daily basis. And our lives are nothing to complain about. Uh, and God says, I want you to follow me because of me. I don't want you to follow me because your life is easy. I don't want you to follow me so that you get the best things. I don't want you to follow me because it makes sense to your plan and your way. You follow Jesus because it's Jesus. <laughs> You follow God because he's God. You follow Christ because he's the only one worthy of following this morning. So when we say God's provision, it may not be the provision we want. It may not be the provision David wanted, but I'm telling you, it's not about you to begin with. It's about Christ and all the direction of all the praise and all the glory. It goes to him, not to us. And to David, he says, I'm going to trust God and not my circumstances because God is ultimately the one who's in charge here. And even on the good days, God gets all the credit. On the worst days, I I have to get all the things back to him and say, God, this is is your story. What are you doing in it? And this is where we find David. Because the story gets worse. As you see David in chapter 22, and we're just going to recap from a high vantage point, 22, because it's going to lead us into, into next week. But as you look at 22, here's a couple things that happen. One, David is now in a tent by himself on the run still in this area of, he says, Adullam, which would be closer even into this area, closer into the caves and things here. Now, as he is there, God sends him his family back. And God sends him about 400 people. I don't know how you fit those in caves, but 400 people start to rally to David and he's got this small kind of makeshift ragtag army kind of forming underneath him in this thing. As this is happening, we see the narrator show us David's provision and then it goes to Saul's craziness. And it's meant to be a juxtaposition. It's meant to show us the difference. So in, in 2 Samuel 22, 6 to 23, Doag returns. The crazy dude in the corner with the creepy, you know, droopy eye kind of deal, that guy, he returns and he's back and he starts to go to Saul because Saul is in the middle of his own pity party. We pick up in verse 6. Now Saul looks worse than David because now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under a tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. Again, with the spear, dude. Like, get rid of the spears. So he's hanging to the tree, spear in hand. All his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all your commanders and thousands and, and thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? See the pity party starting to happen? David's trusting. David's going the right direction. Saul, pity party. Me, me. You all conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Nobody tells me these things. You're holding this against me. And you see Saul starting to unravel here. None of you is sorry for me. That's awesome, right? None of you feels bad for poor Saul. My life's hard, guys. I'm a king, and nobody likes me, and it's tough. And David's on the run for his life, spittle and drool, and you have this king and all this priestly garments and all this established money and fame and everything else. He's like, nobody feels sorry for me. Now, before we go a little too far, let me kind of just jab you a little bit. Can we just say, have we been there before? Where life is going really well? Something bad happens in your day? Something bad happens in your week? You're like, man, does nobody feel bad for me? I have it so hard. Do you? Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Side note. He says, none of us are, or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait at this day? Pity party, pity party, pity party, pity party. Doag comes in. Doag comes in, and he goes in with a lie. Then Doeg, the Edomites who stood at the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, and the son of Atabab, and he acquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. In other words, he said, This priest, David came. David didn't have to do anything. This priest just started giving him stuff. He gave him bread from the presence of God, he gave Goliath's sword, he gave him everything. The priest is the one at fault. And sadly, what happens is Doeg's um, lie is believed. Saul then goes crazy, and he sends an execution squad to Nob to kill every single priest in the city, family, everybody. His servants go. They see what's about to happen. They say, we don't want anything to do with it. And they say, we won't do it. We won't cut these priests down. We won't kill pastors. We're not going to do that. Doag. Saul turns to Doag and says, you do it, and Doag goes crazy. Kills 85 priests in total. Not including women, children, all their livestock burning to the ground. The dude just goes nuts and kills every single one of them. And you're like, why is that in there? Because We want to see the effects, and the narrator is telling us the effects of the deadliness of the sin if it's left unchecked. And this is what happens when sin goes unchecked. It goes to the worst degree. And it shows us not only sin, it shows us the downfall of Saul. Saul has completely lost it, and now he's killing God's own people. And David is not. David is on the run for his life. And as this massacre is happening in Nob, David is hiding out in caves with 400 guys. Soon to be 600 at that point. And during all of this time, here's where we want to close this morning. During all of this time, the beautiful thing is if you turn in Psalms to Psalm 34, going back to the chocolate thing, that idea of taste and see, that Psalm 34 was written During the wait to see the king as he's got spittle and drool and everything else, as he's pretending to be insane, David writes these words in Psalm 34. This is amazing. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Come on, David. Dude, do you you know where you're at? You're in foreign country. You're carrying around Goliath's sword. You're about to be killed. You're acting insane to survive being executed by this king of Gath, and you have the ability to write these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Verse five, as he's drooling, as he's crazy looking, he writes these words Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Whoo, David, resolve, dedication. My circumstances are not the deal here. God is going to come through and I don't care what you say. I will look to him and as God sees me, even as I'm crazy before this king, he will look and you will see a radiant face and a face that will never be ashamed before the God that I serve. Amazing words. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all the troubles. 10 and 11, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack nothing, lack no good thing. David, really? Verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. He goes on later, verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. He writes that song in 34, and then he also writes in Psalm 56, is it right? Yes, so now he's writing this from the cave, hiding out from Saul. He writes these words, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, look at the difference between this and Saul. Saul, poor me, my pity party, the whole thing. David, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they waited for my life. Verse eight, yet you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 13. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from failing, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This morning, I don't know where your, your relationship with, with, with God is. I don't know what circumstances are in your life, but can I just offer this, that David, as an example, is a man of resolve. He is a man who says, I will trust God in the midst of everything going wrong in my life. I will write songs about God's goodness while I am in the worst possible state of my life. You, you see, I think we've, we've made Christianity maybe a little too easy. It was never meant to be easy. It was meant to point people to Jesus. It was not meant to attract everybody to you and how great you are. It was meant to attract everybody to Jesus and God himself. And David knew that. And can you imagine the 400 around him? Hey, David, what are you writing over there? I'm just writing about my trust in God. I'm just writing about how he's never failed me. I'm just writing about how, how every step that I've taken has been designed by him. We're in a cave. We're hiding out for our lives. Yep, and God sees it and God knows it and God's aware and he's gonna come through. The resolve of David is hopeful an encouragement to us in this room. Would you be resolved? Would you just let things kind of wash off? The things that you get so upset about in a week? Would you just be able to say, you know what? This is a small glimpse in the story that God's doing in my life. And I'm gonna to look to the bigger story because God is a God of resolve. He's gonna give me the resolve I need to work through whatever afflictions I'm working through. And that's my hope for us this summer, is that God says that you look to God and say, no matter what is in my life, no matter what circumstances come my way, the resolve will be he is still good, he is still able to be followed, and I will put my trust in him no matter what happens.